to another podcast for the Real Anime Podcast. This is your host, Luke. We're going to be discussing the volume 9 for Michelle Tensei. Uh, this is going to be the light novel. We just did volume 7, volume 8, as well as a review of the actual anime series itself. So um, I was planning to continue this as we go. And I wanted to get this because it's fresh in my mind. This is by far one of the best volumes. So I'm just going to say that right now. This is probably one of my favorites that's come out. There'll be some things I'm going to brush over because they're not quite as important. Well, they are important, but I'm going to brush by some stuff. But I'm going to really try to expand on some stuff that I really enjoyed in this volume. So there's a total of 11 chapters. Then there's also... um, two Sylphiette side stories and then there's an extra chapter at the end um, this is a special chapter because we finally get the return of Eris which is phenomenal because if you remember from the anime you know Eris leaves on episode 23 or volume 6 she leaves Rudeus and left Rudeus in a very you know tattered and mentally just broken state and we finally get some updates on what she's been doing and where she's at and how her journey has been throughout these many years that they've been apart. So the first chapter, the first two chapters are The Prodigy's Secret Part 1 and 2. And those are basically uh, chapters that are dedicated to Cliff. Uh, so Cliff is going to be featured in the new OVA coming out. March 16th, so please tune into that. You'll get to see the side story that was in, uh, I think, Volume 6. There's a side story about how Eris went and killed some um, goblins and things like that, and she met uh, Cliff. And so Cliff uh, Grim- Grimoire, I think is, is his last name. Anyway, he's a you know pretty good mage and, and such and such and such, and he's, he's fairly strong, but you get to finally get a little more backstory into this character through these first couple chapters and you see it from his perspective from the first time he meets Rudeus to being very unimpressed with him and and noting that he had met Eris in the past and that he loved Eris and Eris was his number one and that he didn't think that Rudeus was uh, capable to be around Eris of course this made Rudy mad of course but Rudy you know held his held his anger in and, and, and was able to let it go. And we don't see a lot of interaction between Cliff and Rudy just yet, but in this he's talking about how he's trained so hard to get advanced in all his in all the attack magic he's learned. He's talked about how he remembers back to the goblin slaying event where he met Eris and how he felt about Eris. And all the things he'd heard about Rudy he felt were at the minimum he was disappointed because he'd heard so, such high praise and high regard from Zenoba, from Eris, the way Lenny and Percy were acting around um, Rudy at this point because if you remember in volume 8, you know, Rudy really broke Lenny and Percy due to the whole uh, kidnapping event um, that we discussed in volume 8, but so everyone around the school is acting really not strange around Rudis, but very respectful because I guess people are starting to see just how strong and capable he really is. 
Cliff, on the other hand, is kind of refusing to, uh, like, accept this fact. So, there comes a time whenever, at the end of one of the, at the end of the first chapter, he sees Alanalaz at distance, and he falls head over heels immediately for Alanalaz, and the minute he sees her, he notes that Eris became the, his number two, and that he absolutely just wants to be with Alanalaz, he wants to meet her, he wants to talk to her, he's falling for her head over heels. So, he decides that he, you know, wants to meet her. So, he's trying to plan a way to get to talk with her. And he overhears some boys that are talking about how she's a slut. And she sleeps with all these guys. And that she just, you know, had like a foursome with some people. And this, you know, enrages Cliff because he he sees like Alana Lies as this, you know, angel. So he completely gets enraged and, you know, starts fighting with these group of delinquents only to get absolutely pummeled. And this breaks his confidence more because he's trained with his magic and he's tried to, he's tried to get better. And he remembers, um, like a time where whenever Zenoba first showed up to the school, him and Zenoba got into a fight, but yet his attack magic didn't affect Zenoba because Zenoba's a blessed child. And Zenoba ended up beating uh, Cliff senseless, essentially. And then he also remembers another time where he got into a fight with Lenny and Persia, and Lenny and Persia also beat him senselessly. And he just, at this point, realized just he's starting to realize how strong Rudy must be because he's not only has he tamed Lenny and Persia, the two people who beat him up, he also tamed Zenoba instantly, and that's another person that beat him up. So in this situation, he's fighting these bullies and he's unable to, to beat them and he's kind of he's kind of realizing his, his weaknesses, not being able to cast magic fast enough to actually fight these people. And they chase him down and they proceed to, you know, just to beat him senselessly. And all of a sudden, you know, Rudius shows up out of nowhere and interrupts the fight. Rudius doesn't realize that this is Cliff just yet, so he breaks into the fight and tells the boys that it's not fair, you know, 6, 6v1 isn't a fair fight. The boys immediately recognize Rudius as the, as the person who, who tamed Lenny and Persia, as well as tamed Zenoba. So they recognize who he is, and they back off. And they make a snide comment that they'll be back, and Rudius makes a comment to them that there won't be any coming, like, you won't be coming back to fight this boy, like, it's not fair. If you do, I'll personally handle you. So the boys end up letting it go, but they finally make a remark at the end that it wasn't them that started it, it was him. So then Rudius goes and helps the boy get up, and he realizes that he realizes at this point that it's Cliff. So him and Cliff begin to talk a little bit, and Cliff tells him what happened about how he overheard them talking bad about Alanalyze, it made him mad, and that he he's fallen head over heels for Alanalyze, and he doesn't like people speaking ill of her. Rudy, on the other hand, knowing Alana lies better than everyone else, knows that the, what the boys is, or, or what the delinquents were saying is probably correct. So he he treads cautiously with this with this topic, I should say the least. But uh, Cliff realizes that Rudius and Alana lies know one another really well, so he asks he asks Rudy to introduce him to Alana lies. So. Rudy thinks on this for a while doesn't really want to do it initially because he doesn't want Cliff to get hurt but 
as as it so happens, he decides to cave in and and allow him to meet Alanalyze. But he sets out some ground some ground rules first, and he tells Cliff that he doesn't want any backlash from Cliff if it doesn't work out. And he's very honest and open with him as far as telling him that you know he's not really interested in Alanalyze, but he doesn't want Cliff to think that he is. And he also doesn't want Cliff to think that he's setting him up for failure because Rudy knows more about Alanalyze than pretty much everybody else at the school. So Cliff tells him that, you know, in his faith, the person who match makes for them is held in high regard and, you know, respected, and he would never do that. So Rudy eventually introduces him to Alanalyze, where Cliff basically tells Alanalyze that he it's love at first sight, he loves her, and he just wishes to speak with her and get to know her more. She takes Rudy's side and tells Rudy, you know, are you sure about this? Because you know how I am. You know that I, I can't be tied down to one person due to my curse. And Rudy says, yeah, I'm like, I'm aware. But, you know, he, he was really adamant about meeting you. And so I'm going to let you handle it. And she goes, well, I guess I'll lay him down easy. And Rudy tells her to um, at least tell, her, tell him the truth about why she can't be tied down to him. So he leaves the room after being kind of summoned to leave by, uh, by Lanalaz. And then Cliff, you know, proceeds to tell Lanalaz that he loves her deeply and that, um, and, and after she tells him all about her curse and, and what's going on with her and why she can't be with someone, he tells her that he will devote his entire life to breaking that curse and that he just wants to be with her. He doesn't, you know, like he understands that she's cursed and there's nothing she can do about it, but he's going to do everything in his power to break this curse. So she, you know, falls for him at this point because I guess no one has ever taken the time to tell her this. So they strike up a romance and they begin dating. And she tries to remain as faithful to him as possible. And, you know, they, they, they begin having, you know, lots of sexual intercourse and, and just, you know, just dating in general. And once the story is explained to Rudeus, uh, Rudeus, you know, questions Alanalaz as to what, you know, if this is what she wants. And she says yes. So he, you know, lets it go. And from this point on, Cliff has a newfound, like, respect for Rudeus because he saw... Like, once he realized that Rudius knew about all this, but never said anything to embarrass Alanalaz, never tried to, never openly called her a slut to anybody, never, never put her down, he, he garners, like, a ton of respect for Rudius. So, he basically starts to be more invested in what Rudius is doing, and Alanalaz is also telling stories to Cliff about Rudius's adventuring days, and how amazingly strong he is with magic and so Cliff is starting to really grow fond of Rudius as more like a brother and be, becomes much more active in their conversations and wants to sit near Rudius and listen to what Rudius has to say and ask him more questions about his adventuring days and you know he's just like a little kid just super excited to meet someone like Rudius once he realizes how you know spectacular and fantastic Rudius is at magic. So then we get into a side story with, with Sylphiette. And this side story is just um, it's just a small breakdown of like from Sylphie's perspective, how she's been hanging out with Rudius 
but she hasn't found the courage to tell Rudis who she is. And she absolutely hates herself for this, and she's beating herself up over it, and she's crying about it, and of course Princess Ariel is telling her that, you know, it's okay to take this thing slow, but at some point you've got to step up and tell him, I've given you permission. Of course, Sylphie is very unsure because she's worried that Rudis doesn't remember who she is, and, you know, it's then noted by Ariel that, you know, if you miss your chance, there's a lot of good-looking girls out there that are, at this point, pining over Rudy, and that you're, if you're too careful about this, you might actually miss your chance to, to, to get with him. And so that's basically that whole chapter. And then we get into chapter three and four, and those are the impervious fiancé chapters, part one and part two. Now this one's an interesting one. This is where the volume really kicks up a notch and it starts getting super good. So you remember in volume eight, there was a figure that was heading from the Ogre Kingdom to uh, the Renola University of Magic. It was a really big, uh, tall, like muscular, six-armed, solid black, you know, figure. And we don't, at, at the time, we didn't know much about him, but we just know that he's heading for Rudius. He is on his way currently in these chapters. And so it's mating season for the Doldia tribe. And as per the rules of mating season for the Doldia tribe, if someone is uh, brought in for a duel, if so someone challenges, say, another female to a duel, and they win, they're able to marry that said female, and they mate... And then they can, you know, start their family and start their life together. It's just kind of like a, a thing that the Dolly Trap does. So, the two princesses, of course, are in very high demand because whoever conquers the princesses ultimately can become the leader of the Dolly Trap. So, they have tons of suitors that come after them and try and, you know, beat them in, in battle and, and wed them. However, they, they leave a cryptic message to Rudy and they tell Rudy that... You know, we don't we don't really want to be a part of this right now due to the due to how we're feeling because I guess during mating season they're basically in heat the entire time and they don't want to be tempted to potentially throw a fight because they find someone attractive. So they implore Rudius that since he's the boss of their pack, because they've completely, you know, lost to him in the past and they have no chance of beating him, they implore that he needs to protect their, you know, virginity essentially and defeat any oncoming um, people who might challenge them. And so they've passed this message along, I guess, to the Dolly tribe, and the Dolly tribe <laughs> has gladly welcomed it because they, because they, like the the chief and stuff knows who Rudis is, so they find this acceptable. And of course, Rudius is told by Fitz, or Sylphie at the time, that, you know, to be careful, don't challenge anybody and try to avoid fighting because, you know, during this time, people take advantage of this process and there's a lot of, like, bad stuff that's happened in the past where people have gotten raped or people have gotten, you know, attacked viciously that weren't even part of the Dolly tribe. And that hence the reason for all the rules, like, regarding, like, you can't walk past the girl's dorm toward a certain time. So really starts to understand why these rules are in place. 
and he, he tells Fitzy he, he plans not to fight anybody and you know he's he's completely um, decided that anybody who challenges him he's just going to ignore and deny the challenge because the rules of the schools permit that if you don't want to fight you don't have to and so on the one of the days you know Rudis is heading to the library and on his way to the library there's a striking beauty that kind of stops him or gets in his way and it's a purple she's, she's got purple hair she's wearing like you know really good like armor she's got a fancy sword she doesn't look like she's part of the school Rudius notices her immediately and kind of fawns over her beauty but the person who actually spoke up was not this woman it was somebody else and there's a beast trap member there that has challenged Rudy to a matrimonial duel for either Lenia or Persia. Rudy immediately denies, you know, says that he doesn't want to fight and that he's not going to fight. So he proceeds to walk away from the guy after telling him that he had like a piano lesson to do and he didn't have time for this fight. So the guy tells him that he doesn't really understand the situation and that he's going to fight. So he jumps in front of Rudius and, and instantly attacks Rudius, but Rudius drops a quagmire spell simultaneously and hits him with a stone cannon laying him out in three seconds flat the then he proceeds to go to the library where he's attacked five or six more times within a few minutes he easily knocks every everybody out on his way to the library and then he locks himself in there and begins you know studying the displacement incident again Fitz shows up later noting that there's a huge line of people outside that are obviously lined up and they want to fight Rudius. Rudius, of course, is appalled by this and he asks Rudius, like, or he asks Fitz why everyone's out there and then she tells him that, well, I mean, it's obviously because you're you're the pack leader of, of Lenny and Perseus, so they're here to challenge you. And she says, maybe if you out, if you wait them out long enough, they'll, they'll leave. So Rudius decides that that's his plan. He's just going to wait them out, and he's not going to—he's not going to get in a fight with them. She also notes that there's a female warrior out there as well that she doesn't recognize, and she also wants to challenge him. And Rudius kind of quips that is she—is she beautiful? Makes a joke, and of course Fitz gets flustered by this and says, you know, don't don't even think about it, you know, and, and just gets very hot and bothered by the fact that Rudis made a comment about another female. So, finally, Rudis heads out of the library. It's went from, you know, around lunchtime to, to, to dusk at this point. It's starting, the sun's starting to go down a little bit. He goes outside, and to his surprise, the whole, like, lot of people that had lined up, you know, 40... 40 so people that had lined up outside have been completely knocked out. And there's one man standing in the middle and it happens to be the the guy from the ogre village that had traveled all the way to get to Rudy's. And he laughs out and he starts laughing and he, he laughs a lot like Kishirika, Kishrasu. And he's just laughing and he has, you know, his arms folded. Or he has two of his arms folded on his chest two of his arms pointing at Rudius and two of his arms, you know, on his hips in like a dramatic superhero pose. And he tells Rudius that he's here to fight him or he's here to challenge him to a duel and that if 
Rudius was to beat him, he would bestow the title hero onto Rudius. Rudius asks, you know, who he is, and he finally introduces himself as Batagati, and he is the immortal demon king, the fiance to the immortal demon king, or the immortal demon empress, uh, Kishirika Kishirisu. And so after this, uh, you know, introduction, Rudius is surprised, of course, and they head to a more, what they think is going to be a more secluded area to fight. Meanwhile, the entire Renoa kingdom is in a state of panic because <laughs> Batagati has absolutely wiped the floor with countless amounts of people. He hasn't killed anybody, but he's left he's left tons of people injured and just knocked out in his wake on, on the way there. And the word of Batagati approaching the Renoa kingdom has spread like wildfire and neighboring neighboring cities and neighboring kingdoms have have pretty much got a war party ready to go to go and try and stop the immortal demon king and they've even in the Renoa kingdom is, or the Renoa Institute of Magic is flipping out and the president and the vice president are freaking out and they have They've gone to the adventuring guild and asked the uh, the step leader, the S class adventuring group, that they need to go and show up and stop this guy. And of course, like many adventure parties are getting ready to go. And before you know it, it cuts back to Rudius and Batagati, and they're staring each other down in a face off. Rudius doesn't have his staff, of course. And Fitz is there, and Rudius tells Fitz to go get his staff so he can do this duel. So Fitz heads off to go get his staff. Meanwhile, there's a man who happens to be the principal, but he's disguised, and he's wearing, like, a, a wig. He runs up to Rudius, and he says that he needs to do his best to stall for time because he's got a whole army coming to stop this guy. And he says that this guy is no normal foe and that he's extremely powerful. Do not fight him. He'll kill you on the spot. So Rudy's plans to just stall for time. And so they begin to stall, or he begins to stall, and he, you know, questions Batagati as to why he's here. Batagati says, you know, that my fiance found you very interesting because of the amount of mana that, that you have. Rudius then asks, you know, what she saw, and he says that she saw that he has mana very similar to Lapis, to the Demon King. This surprises Rudy because he, he always thought he had more mana than everybody else, but he didn't realize that he had that much more mana. Batagati tells him that the amount of mana he has in his body would surely kill anybody else because, like, it's just, it's just an insane amount of mana, like, you know, Somewhere in the range of probably like 100 times the amount of a normal adventurer slash mage. And Rudy, you know, shocked by this news, of course, questions Batagati some more about the duel. He asks Batagati if this is a duel to the death or if this is just a duel where if he gives up or if, or if, you know, they fight, if they just clash once or twice, is this going to be over? Batagati tells him that he has a better idea that if, you know, if, if Rudy can just land a hit on him, he will, you know, if he can land a hit and actually go through his battle, battle aura, 
he'll crown him the victor. So then Rudy, still waiting for his staff, says, so can I ask you anything? And Badagati says, yes, you can. And he proceeds to ask him about the man gun. Of course, he treads lightly. He tells him that he doesn't want him to fight and start killing everybody immediately here. But he says that, you know, the, like the man gun visits him sometimes in his dreams. And he was just curious if he knew who he was. Badagati begins to think about the man god and he goes you know I haven't heard that name in many centuries but I do recognize the name he says I don't know much about the about this gentleman but I know that he is um, someone of high power and then Rudius then asks Badagati some more questions Badagati answers and then finally the topic of the dragon god Orsid comes up and the way that topic comes up is Badagati asks him how Rudius has gotten, like, or why Rudius is here at this school, because clearly, like, Rudius has more mana, more power than everyone at the school. Badagati notes this many a time throughout the conversation, and he questions why Rudius would waste his time at a little school like this, where the best they could teach him is maybe like a, a better, like a slightly better spell. Rudius tells him that not too long ago, a few years back, he ran into the dragon god Orsted and was pummeled to death and almost killed. And Badagati is super surprised by this information and he asks Rudius, you know, he's basically surprised that Rudius lived and he, he repeats and says, you know, so you ran into the demon god or to the dragon god Orsted and lived. Rudius answers yes. Badagati then asks him if he injured the dragon god in any way, ever so slightly, if he injured him at all. Rudius says he did. He injured him on the hand with one of his attacks. Badagati is flabbergasted by this information. And so the crowd is murmuring in the background because they can't quite hear what Badagati and Rudius are talking about. Uh, Fitz is trying to get through the crowd, but there's people holding her back, and she, you know, she can't get to Rudius. She has his staff. The principal's there holding her back, saying, you know, don't, don't bring the staff to him because then they'll have to fight. And then she makes a comment that, well, if he doesn't fight at all, he, you know, he, he could really die. So we need to at least give him his weapon. So Zenova shows up at the right time and basically parts the seas with his power. And throws uh, Sylphie kind of out from the crowd. And Sylphie shows up, or Fitz. Fitz shows up with the staff at the right time, of course. And upon showing up, he gives the staff to, to Rudius. Wishes Rudius good luck. And tells him that if he feels he's in any danger, that he should retreat immediately. Because this person is clearly of a different level. And he needs to be really careful. Rudius notes this. And then... As he holds the staff, he looks at Badagati and says, tells Badagati that, just to be clear on the rules, that if he lands one hit on Badagati that, you know, injures him in any way, he wins. And Badagati says yes. So Badagati, you know, charges up his, his, uh, mana, you know, aura, and then Rudius begins to channel mana through his staff, and he creates a stone cannon like the one he made against Orsted, except this time 
because he gets a free shot, he puts everything into this stone cannon that he can do, and he actually fires it directly from the staff, not from the ground. And upon charging it, he fires it off. This thing whistles through the air at very high pace. It strikes the demon god or the the immortal demon king. It strikes him in the you know upper torso area. The smoke clears, and to Rudius' to Rudius's surprise, everything on the demon king from his lower half down is the only, like the only thing left standing. Like Rudius blew his entire upper body away and incinerated with that one attack all the limbs of Batagati. And he knocked the the lower limb, like the legs and stuff, back against like a back several feet. The crowd is in absolute shock. The principal is completely floored. The vice principal's floored. Everybody is just quiet. They can't believe what they just saw. Rudius can't even believe that he just did this. So he's almost as surprised as everybody else. And shortly thereafter, like Rudius approaches the corpse of Batagati and he thinks I, I didn't mean to kill this guy like I can't believe I did this like did I make an enemy out of the other demon out of the other demon kings potentially and as he turns around Batagati has already regenerated and his his upper half is a little smaller than what it was before he's more Rudeus's height now and his head is you know a little bit bigger and his limbs have regenerated but they're crawling toward Batagati's body and they reattach themselves onto Batagati. The crowd is again shocked by seeing this because, you know, he really is an immortal king. He didn't even bleed. Rudius is taken back after seeing this and immediately kind of jumps back thinking that, Bat- that the duel might continue. And then Batagati remarks that he hasn't been hit that hard in centuries. He said the last person that did that to him was Lapless. And he said that he was really impressed by this magic and that only magic of King Tier level or higher can penetrate his battle war. Rudy questions what that means because he didn't fire off a King Tier spell, but Batagati tells him that the amount of mana that he charged into that attack was King Tier and up. And he compliments him on the amount of power he was able to put into that one attack. And he says he can understand how this could harm the, the dragon god Orsted. And he raises Rudius's hand and he declares Rudius the winner and declares him a hero. And then he proceeds to punch Rudius straight in the face. <laughs> and he knocks Rudius out. And when, when, when Rudius comes to, he's laying in the lap of... Uh, Fitz, of course, is Sylphie. And Sylphie's like calmly stroking his hair. Rudius uh, wakes up and asks what happened. And Fitz tells him that it was amazing that you blew the you blew the demon god away with your attack and that he declared you the hero. And so, of course, once Rudy gets up, the principal ushers him, or the vice principal ushers him into his office and begins to talk to him and tells him that what he saw out there was amazing. He's never seen magic of that like caliber done with an intermediate spell but to amp it up that strong. He said that it was just absolutely amazing. And that he was totally surprised and that most of the people that had finally shown up to defeat Batagati were surprised to hear that Rudius Greyrat had already defeated him. 
And so apparently the principal as well as some other high standing officials have taken Badagati into the school and they're having like a, a tea party with him essentially talking, you know, just kind of trying to figure out why he was there. Badagati's telling him that he just came there for Rudius. He just wanted to see if his power was what he had heard it was. And so they make this like little thing up that he wasn't there to, to kill anybody. He was just there to see Rudius and that they're going to make him a special teacher temporarily um, while he's there. And so a few days go by and Rudius is back in class and everyone around the school is completely intimidated by Rudius at this point. Everybody. All the girls are afraid of him. All the guys are afraid of him. The teachers are afraid of him. And Rudius goes to his homeroom class where everyone in the school or everyone in that class is just absolutely, you know, fawning over how great Rudius is at this point. Cliff is fawning over him. Alanalyze is talking how great uh, Rudius is. And then Alanalyze makes a comment that it was actually her that tipped off the tipped off Badagati that um, Rudis was in the school because she knew Badagati and she knew that Badagati wanted to meet him. So she tipped him off, knowing that he wasn't really going to kill anybody. He just wanted to meet Rudis. So then open. So then the the principal walks in the door, and in comes behind the principal. Badagati comes in wearing like a a very large version of the like outfit that I guess the teachers wear but it's like stretched really bad due to his like muscles and stuff and he introduces himself to everyone in the class that he's the demon king immortal demon king Badagati fiance of uh, Kishirika Kishirisu and he compliments Rudy again in front of the other special students and he says that he'll be here for the time being and that if they need any advice or anything to come to him and he would he would gladly tell them great stories of old and maybe even give them advice on fighting and things like that. So that pretty much wraps up those early sets of chapters. So this this entire setup here is really great though because it, it really establishes how crazy strong Rudius has become. Rudius is so oblivious to his strength though. He doesn't realize that he's as strong as he is. And at this point, Rudius is starting to understand that he's a cut above everybody else. And because no one else could even harm the Demon King, Rudius completely shattered everyone's, you know, thoughts and beliefs that he could be defeated because Rudius completely blew him away with one spell. So, to, to Rudius's dismay, of course, though, this has created an atmosphere where people are afraid of him, and he doesn't want people to be afraid of him. And so, you know, early on in the next chapter, Fitz tells him in the library that she's discovered somebody at the school that is, that is an expert when it comes to summoning magic. And this is coming in handy because, you know, it, it involves the displacement instant. And so Rudius questions who it is, and Fitz finally tells him that it's the elusive sixth member of the special student class and the name is Silent Seven Star. Rudius takes note of the name and questions questions the name as to as to why it would be Silent Seven Star. So he goes and finds out where Silent Seven Star is at and he goes to the lab and he, he's picturing like a mad scientist in there but to his 
but to the unlikely, um, well, to his, I guess, surprise, when he opens the door, he finds that there is a girl standing there with her back to the door, and she's ushered him into the door, and he, when she turns around, he notices the white mask that he saw whenever they encountered Orsted back in uh, part two of the early parts of the of the story. So this frightens Rudius down to his core, and he immediately retreats, um, scared out of his mind, because he, he realizes that this girl is the same girl that was accompanying Orsted. He is full panic mode at this point, and he, he's worried that Orsted is somewhere in the room, and he's, he's thinking that he's going to get killed. So he retreats and eventually is running away from the girl and he falls down the stairs, knocks himself out, comes to, and of course he's laying again on Sylphie's lap and Sylphie's stroking his hair again and Rudius gets up and he's in the infirmary and the doctor and the, the nurse is there saying, you know, hey, you know, you gotta be careful going downstairs. And Rudius looks around and realizes that the uh, that the girl in the mask is staring at him from across the room. Rudis again falls out of bed, completely crawling toward the door, trying to get away from her. And Sylphie slash Fitz is confused at his antics because she doesn't understand why he's acting like this. And Rudis hasn't ever told anybody about his encounter with Orsted except for, you know, a handful of people. And then, so Fitz questions to the girl why Rudis is acting like this and the girl responds saying that well the last time that we met and this surprises Fitz she says the last time that we met he was beaten to a pulp and almost killed but he but we revived him and this surprises Fitz because she didn't think that anybody could beat Rudis down like that and then anyway so they begin finally begin conversing with each other and they're back in her lab and Rudis is of course really scared to be there but as they're speaking she writes something down in Japanese and Rudis immediately recognizes that it's Japanese and then she starts speaking to him in Japanese and Rudis of course converses back with her in Japanese and Fitz doesn't understand a word they're saying and she questions like what they're saying but Rudis says not to worry about it that you know this is uh, kind of a secret conversation but they'll allow her to stay and they'll bring her in whenever uh, the time is right so Fitz is sitting in the corner waiting patiently to be brought into the conversation they begin talking and you find out that this girl was also isekai into this world and it happens to be the same girl that Rudius tried to save uh, during the truck coon incident in the first volume he questions why she looks the exact same and why she doesn't have a different body. And the girl explains that she wasn't isekai the moment that, that you know, like, like she, she was only recently isekai. And that the displacement incident happened because she was isekai into the world. So Rudius asks, so then she questions Rudius as to how he was brought into the world. Rudius doesn't tell her all the details. He doesn't tell her that he was the guy that got killed trying to protect her from the truck. But he says that he was actually born into the world, like, re, like reincarnated. 
but he remembers his past life. So she's surprised by this, and she's also surprised to realize that Rudis has mana control, because Rudis tells her that, you know, he's been told on high authority that he has more mana than everybody that is in the school and anyone around. And then she tells him that she can't use mana for some reason, and that when she was brought into the world, she stayed the same age that she was when she was brought in, and she hasn't aged a day since. So this shocks Rudy to his core because he questions as to what or who brought her to this world. And he asks if the dragon god did it, and she says no. But the dragon god appeared before her whenever she was isekai into the world, and then realizing that she was brought unwillingly to this world, he shielded and protected her and gave her some magic items that protected her against all magic spells and um, basically just, you know, accompanied her on a journey to get her to somewhere safe and he took her to the Renoa School of Magic safely, of course. And she also is not affected by the curse that's on Orsted. So this is another little tidbit of information. And this is also where Rudis finds out that they traversed the entire, like the entire world uh, within like a year. And Rudis questions how this was done. And she says that they used an ancient magic that the dragon god knew of, which is teleportation magic. And that there's these secret locations that the dragon god has made up where you step in and it will teleport you to another continent or another part of the world. And you'll exit at an area that he's built directly for this. So Rudis asks where they're located and she says she can't say anymore because the dragon god has swore her to secrecy because it's not something that everyday people should know about. So now at this point Rudis is ushered in uh, Fitz for the conversation and she tell or he tells uh, Silent Seven Star to actually start speaking in a tongue that they you know that Fitz can understand. So Silent Seven Star then introduces herself as Nanahoshi, which is then explained that Nanahoshi means Silent Seven Star, apparently in Japanese. And then Rudius makes a comment that the name was a little bit on the nose, but maybe it's because she was hoping that if someone else was isekai that someone would notice. And she also says that she's the reason for the displacement incident. And she apologizes profusely. This enrages uh, Sylphie, who begins to attack Nanahoshi. But Nanahoshi's magical like rings that she wears, thanks to Orsted, nullify all attacks. And then Rudius grabs Fitz and gets Fitz under control and says, you know, she wasn't brought here of her own will. It's not her fault. Somebody else did it. This surprises Fitz. And then they be kind of they all become friends a little bit and then Nanahoshi tells um, Rudius that if he wants information on how to use the different teleportation circles and potentially information on how to do summonings and just more information on the mana displacement in general that if he would work with her on trying to get her back to her world she would gladly give any information to him. So Rudis decides that he's going to help her, and so she lays out the groundwork for the plan, and, you know, over the next course of several weeks, Rudis spends a lot of time with Nanahoshi, kind of uh, 
supplying mana to her circles that she's designed so that they can teleport something from another world into there. And she's taking a lot of precaution because she doesn't want to have another mana displacement. And she's also come to the fact or come to the conclusion that you can't summon a human under normal circumstances so there shouldn't be any worry that they're going to summon like a human from another world but their goal is to just simply summon stuff like fruits or plants or animals from another world to test how much mana it actually takes to do this and that if they're successful eventually Nanahoshi feels that they'll come up with a solution or she will come up with a solution that will be able to send her back to her world so, again, this, this sparks a little bit of jealousy with, uh, with Fitz because she, or he, wants, you know, to be near Rudeus, but Rudeus is spending less and less time in the library and more time with Nanahoshi. So she fears that Nanahoshi and Rudeus are becoming an item. So she gets a little, you know, over, I guess, zealous and a little protective of Rudeus to Rudeus's, you know, surprise. And Nanahoshi picks up on this immediately and dismisses the idea that they're dating or anything like that. She tells him that she finds she, she doesn't find anything about him attractive and she's just using him to help with her research. This calms fits down a little bit. And then that's where we get into the next Sylphiet chapter, which again, this is just more uh, conjecture from Sylphiet about her being, you know, taken back that, that Rudeus is spending more time with Nanahoshi. She's worried about this relationship and she's noticing that he's spending a lot of time with Lenny and Persia. She sees how attractive a lot of the people are around him and she's just worried that he's going to just forget about her in general and eventually be with somebody else. And despite her efforts to you know, try and keep these emotions in. These emotions are starting to leak out. Rudeus is starting to notice these emotions, but she still can't find the courage to tell him that she is Sylphie. And, you know, when she goes to Luke Greyrat and to Ariel, they tell her that, you know, you have permission, you need to, like, you need to step up and do something because if you don't, you, you might actually lose it. And so then we get into the next you know chapter and it's just more slice of life stuff with him continuing his everyday routine meeting with Badagati talking about adventures and um, during this time Soldat sends a message to the school for Rudy Soldat is the leader of Step Leader the S-ranked adventuring group and he basically tells Rudy that he's going to be in town and that they need to meet up and that he hadn't seen him in a while and he just wants to see him. He, he's there for some meetings for their clan, but he would like to definitely have some time to drink some beer with him. And so Rudius, Alanalyze, and Cliff all decide that they're going to go and meet up with Soldat and his party. And they meet up with him and there's some funny comments made about Alanalyze settling down with Cliff, you know, and the whole party you know, make some jokes about her being a slut, and this enrages Cliff, but, you know, they just laugh at him, and then before you know it, they're telling adventure, or they're, they're reminiscing about their old days, and about how, how great Rudeus was, and all the stuff that he did, and 
Cliff is, you know, googly-eyed the whole time listening. Alana Lies is also giving out information about how, you know, some of the epic battles that she's seen Brutus do. And so that remarks that it's amazing that Brutus was able to defeat the Demon King in one strike. But he's not surprised because he saw him take out a dragon in one hit too. And then Soldat begins to tell stories of his current adventures to Rudis, all the ones that he's been missing. So Soldat tells all these stories, and before you know it, everyone's captivated by the stories. Cliff is captivated, and then at the end, Soldat asks Rudis if he wants to go on an adventure to kill some time and maybe get away from school for a, a, like a month or two, or maybe just a week. Rudis declines the offer, but then Elinalyz wants to go. Because she is not bored with school, but she wants to get out and do some adventuring. So Cliff wants to go with Lionelize, and they make a deal that Cliff will get to go. And maybe that Cliff can see how great Lionelize is, you know, up close in person during these, you know, ad- adventuring times. And that Cliff will get a new appreciation for the S-Class hero or the S-Class adventures because he's never actually seen them. And it'll be his first time getting to party up with such a strong group. So everyone agrees that it'll be fun. And then Cliff looks for Rudy, or looks to Rudy for some advice, but Rudy declines to give him any advice because he feels that because he's younger than Cliff, he doesn't think he should um, tell an upperclassman how to adventure with other adventurers. But he does tell him that, you know, if you have any questions, make sure you ask them and rely on your party members and don't think you have to do everything by yourself. So then Rudius, you know, leaves and begins to wander, you know, toward his home. And he runs into Sylphie again. And they exchange, you know, a little bit back and forth. Of course, he's clueless as all get out. And she's very, like, flirtatious with him, but he doesn't pick up on this. But he does notice that he starts to question a little bit as to what gender... Sylphie actually is or fits so there's a moment where he where they trip and fall and of course uh, Sylphie falls into his his arms and they're on the ground and they're really close to kissing each other and Rudis notices that his little man has woken up for the first time in a long time and he questions whether or not he's turning, truly turning gay because he feels like he has feelings for this Fitz person. And he wonders if it's an a- actually a man or not. And if it is, he needs to come to terms with it because maybe he's become gay over the time. And so he, he realizes that he does have some feelings for, for Fitz. And he blatantly asks Fitz if, if Fitz is a woman. And... Fitz's face turns red and then denies that she's a woman and says that she is indeed a man. This surprises Rudius because he, you know, he was able to kind of fill her up a little bit and he had come to the conclusion that it had to be a female because it, it just didn't feel like a man. But then he says, you know, maybe it's because he's an elf that he feels this way. So after this, uh, rumors, you know, start running rampant that Fitz and Rudius. <laughs> had almost made out and of course Ariel and Luke are reprimanding uh, Sylphie for not telling him at this point because it would have been a perfect time to tell him and 
they're disappointed that he didn't tell them. So this leads into the next chapter, and this chapter is primarily focused on Sylphie's point of view. Even though it's not a direct Sylphie side story, it is it is focused on her point of view. So she goes to to talk with Luke and Ariel about what happened. She begins to tell them that she wants to tell them so bad, but she's worried that if she tells them, it's going to mess up their relationship. Ariel senses this and tells her that as a friend of Sylphie, she wants to help Sylphie. She repeatedly asks Sylphie what she wants to do with, with Rudeus, and she daydreams, you know, about having sex with Rudeus and marrying him and him coming home to her and her cooking dinner for him and then you know casually eating breakfast and waking up in the same bed and having babies and just all the just all the stuff that married people do and Ariel asks what is the strongest memory that she can remember of Rudeus because her hope is that they can break into Rudeus's mind and maybe make him remember that this is Sylphie so Sylphie remembers, you know, several different times about her being bullied and how Rudeus saved her. So then Princess Ariel thinks that maybe they could arrange for something similar, maybe maybe to have Fitz kidnapped and beaten up and have Rudeus come in and save her. And then upon that, he would realize that that's, that, that, that is indeed Sylphie. But Luke notes that that probably won't work because... He has too many connections to, to the Adventuring Guild, so even if they hired somebody, he would probably know who they are. And let alone, there's probably no, not very many people that could cause too big of an issue to Rudeus, considering that he took out a Demon King by himself. He also took out a dragon. And so they question whether or not even one Adventuring Group would be enough to do it. It'd probably take, you know, four or five Adventuring Groups to even cause a problem for Rudeus. And the fact that Rudius knows the majority of the adventuring groups, and they know of Rudius, the minute, like the minute the information would go out that this is just a ploy to get Rudius to come save Sylphie, it would bring too many questions up, and Rudius would immediately probably discern that this is fake. So, she asks Sylphie what another memory of Rudius is, and of course she remembers the time when it rained on him, and that Rudius took him back to the to her house and tried to take her clothes off because they needed to take a bath and he was worried that she was going to get sick so when he stripped over her clothes he realized at that point that she was a girl and Ariel you know realizes at this point that this is the reason why Rudeus acts the way he does and the reason why he doesn't want to um, or he won't betray Fitz as far as even if he thinks Fitz is a girl, he won't say anything. And it all kind of makes sense now because she says, you know, Ru like Rudeus is actually a really good person and he learned a valuable lesson during that time not to, not to forcibly strip somebody. And maybe if they had a secret they didn't want to give out, it's not wise to, um, you know, divulge that secret. So she commends Rudy for being the way he is and tells Sylphie that they might be able to recreate this same scenario if they can, you know, if they can plan it out. So she then hires, you know, some advanced ranked mages and their plan is simple. Sylphie goes to Rudius, she finds Rudius and she separates him from the group that he's in. 
and she tells him that uh, on the pretense that there's another guard for another princess that has issued a challenge to her that that she needs to be able to go get this certain flower that grows in this certain part of the forest and that you know she has basically been been challenged to do this with you know only a group of two Rudius, of course, immediately tries to undermine this by saying, well, I can hire adventurers for you to go do it, and no one would know the wiser. And then when she refutes that point, Rudius then comes up with another idea that would solve the problem, but she, but would clearly prevent them from having to go out. Rudius even has the idea that he could send adventurers out to kill all the monsters, and they could just go get the flower themselves, and it would all work out. But Sylphie continues to be adamant about that it just needs to be her and him that go do it. So Rudius agrees that he would be her bodyguard and that he would go and help her get this flower. So Rudius packs accordingly because, you know, they're in the northern region. It's 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 in the wintertime right now. It's very snowy. Um, the snow, you know, is, is described as being up, you know, to their waist or higher in some areas. And so... Sylphie is surprised at the amount of gear that Rudy's packed and notes that, you know, Rudy's is a true adventurer because he really knows the lay of the land. He knows what to bring. Rudy's has, has planned for every possible problem that could arise in this bag. And so they, be, they, they set out on their adventure. Rudy's is, you know, calmly melting the snow as they're walking. She notes at this point that it's amazing that Rudy's can do this because she can't do this. And that it's very tricky to, to, to maintain mana control the entire time and actually melt the snow without, you know, torching everything around you and creating, like, smoke that would maybe alert other monsters that you're doing this. And Rudy tells her that it takes practice and that he's done this many times and that it's just about keeping the right temperature. And then around this time, she has taken hold of Rudy's staff and she made a, a story that she wanted to carry the staff because she doesn't have one. And she has always wanted to try and just, you know, use one. And she wanted to feel like what the staff felt like or whatever. Rudius makes a sexual comment out of this, of course. And Fitz doesn't quite get the joke right away. But I think she gets it later on, de like definitely. But he makes a joke about the staff being really thick and really hard. And when she, you know, grabs the staff or whatever, they continue to walk. And then some ominous clouds appear, you know, on their, like, second or third day of their journey. Some ominous clouds have appeared. And it's the advanced rank mages that are causing, the, causing this commotion. And it's going to start raining soon. So then Rudius decides he's going to separate the clouds. So he puts his hand up in the sky to separate the cloud. And Fitz is keeping his staff away from Rudius to prevent this. At the same time, she's worried that Rudius will will easily overpower the other mages as the clouds are beginning to dissipate. So she then channels Mana into the staff that she's holding, which is Rudius's staff, and she <laughs> forces the clouds to stay. So she actually cancels out Rudius's own like magic at the same time she's casting magic into the sky he's casting magic to separate the clouds but but they just don't end up separating and it starts to rain and they get soaking wet and then they find a cave to go to and they get inside the cave and this is where the story 
starts to, you know, get pretty good, you know, with, with, with Rudius here. They, they get inside the cave. He obviously fortifies everything, seals the cave off, makes a fire, uh, you know, makes like a chimney so that there's smoke that can escape. And he takes off his clothes because he's soaking wet and he doesn't want to die from hypothermia. And he creates like a clothesline and everything, hangs up his clothes. He turns around to see Fitz sitting in the corner with all their clothes on, still soaking wet, shivering. Rudius knows that it's a girl. He's very confident that this is a girl. And he tells her that you should take off those clothes. You know, you could die from hypothermia if you don't. And she says, okay. And he tells her that he'll turn around and keep his, you know, eyes closed. And he won't, he won't peek or nothing because he knows that, um, like, it can be very embarrassing having to take your clothes off in front of a man. So Fitz sits there quietly and Rudius waits for a little bit and turns around and notices that Fitz hasn't moved at all and hasn't really taken anything off. So then Rudius decides, okay, so if you want me to, I'll go outside so you can take your clothes off. Please, please dry your, please dry your clothes off so that you don't die. I'll go outside for a moment and you can get changed and everything. And then uh, Sylphie stands up and stops him and says, you know, tells him, no, don't, don't, don't leave me. And Rudius is taken back by this because he's really only standing in his boxers at this point. He's taken back by this information and she tells him that, you know, I might die if I don't get my clothes off. And Rudius says, yeah, you might die. And she keeps hinting that she wants him to take take her clothes off so he finally caves in and he begins to take her clothes off for her and is at this point as he takes all her clothes off he realizes that it is indeed a girl and the last the last little bit of clothing well he he leaves her panties and her bra on but the last little bit of clothing that she's hinting that he needs to remove are her sunglasses so he removes his sunglasses and then realizes that this is Sylphie. We have this really cute moment between the two characters where Rudius immediately knows who it is. He's shocked to see Sylphie and he, he wonders again why her hair has turned white because he remembers it as green. But he says he, he, couldn't, he couldn't mistake those eyes. He couldn't mistake that face. And then she lunges forward and gives him like a huge hug and they embrace each other and then she looks up at him and tells him that she loves him and she's always loved him she loved him when they were little and she loves him more now they spent a year together at the at the university and she's fallen for him even more and then Rudius slightly pushes her away and then questions whether or not he should answer right away but then decides that he needs to so he tells her that he also loves her and he loved her when he was little and he loves her now and he leans in and, and, and they have a nice little kiss moment and Sylphie is you know ecstatic with this and then they cuddle with each other for a little bit and as they finally get warmed up and the fire you know has warmed everything up in the cave um, Sylphie kind of you know is pressing the matter a bit with Rudius so Rudius lays her down and he notices that he's been turned on this entire time by her 
and he is standing at full attention for her, if you know what I mean. And he lays her down gently on the stone, and uh, he's he's gonna he's gonna you know have sex with her. But unfortunately, when he starts to have sex with her, he asks her if this is her first time. She says yes, and then she's she realizes that this isn't Rudy's first time. So Rudius tells her that he's going to treat her gently and try to do the best he can. And so he begins to have sex with her, but then realizes that his little man has given up the energy again and has just gone silent. And then he's crushed by this yet again, because now it's not just some random person that he met at an adventuring group like it was with Sarah. It's someone he actually cared about, and he still can't have sex with her. But he's optimistic at the same time because this is the first person in, you know, many years that has actually gotten something out of him down, you know, in his, in his nether regions. So she tells him that it's okay and that she doesn't think she's attractive, so she understands. Rudius tells Fitz or Sylphie that she's very attractive and it's not her fault. It's his condition. And then she questions about the condition. And this is when Rudis finally tells her the full story. Tells her about what happened, you know, three years ago with Eris. He tells her what happened with Sarah. And how ever since the moment with Sarah, his little man has stopped working. And he tells her that he's been traumatized from women in the past due to Eris. And that he's just been unable to have any relation with the female sex and he feels horrible about it because he knows that this is going to hurt Sylphie when he tells her this but she remains relatively optimistic about the situation and then they end up spending the rest of the night together just cuddled up and just exchanging stories about what happened and Rudius asks Sylphie why she hid her identity from him for so long she gets the nerve to tell him that she was so shocked that he didn't recognize her initially, that she worried that maybe he forgot about her. And that just as time passed on, she just couldn't find the courage to tell him because she was worried that he wouldn't feel the same about her that she felt about him. And that it was actually Princess Ariel's idea to do this, to try and recreate this memory of what happened when they were kids. And then Rudius remembers what happened when they were children. And he tells her that he he remembered immediately once everything started who she was. And he says that he never forgot about her. She was always on his mind. And that's when she notices the pendant that he's wearing is the little pendant that she made for him. And she says, how long have you had that pendant? And he goes, well, I've had it for... You know, ever since Lilia gave it to me. And he says, I know that you made this for me, and I would never let it go, ever. Because it, it always is a reminder of you. It's just a memory of you. And she, you know, blushes bright red with this and says that she's surprised that he hung on, hung on to that for so long. And he tells her that it's something he cherishes deeply. Almost to the same degree that he cherishes Roxy's panties. Or the Roxy figurine, or even the Rajurd figurine, he cherishes this item. And she smiles, and they spend the rest of the night kind of just cuddled up, and they fall asleep. And 
then they the next day they get up and they head out and they're gonna head back because now that Rudis knows that the entire thing was just a facade to get this to happen they travel back to the kingdom and it takes them three days to get back to Renoa they make it back to Renoa Rudis tells her that he hopes to see her again soon and that they should probably rest up for that night and then maybe they could meet back up soon and she says okay and she says I look forward to it and she has to go deliver her report to Princess Ariel so she goes to where Princess Ariel is at and then this is where we get into the chapter 11 which is the final push and we get to where she meets with Princess Ariel and Luke and she tells them the story of what happened and that it actually worked remarkably well and Rudis did remember who you know like he remembered everything and that he was an actual gentleman to her and he didn't want to do uh, he didn't want to strip her of her clothes but she forced him to and Ariel you know is very happy with this news that Rudis was such a gentleman to her but then she notices that Sylphia seems a little bit down and she asks what happened and Sylphia tells her that well we didn't have sex because Rudis suffers from a, a disorder and Ariel asks what the disorder is and she says that he has you know impotence and that it's been like that for several years since he last had sex with somebody and that the last time he had had sex the person left him immediately and kind of broke his broke his I guess mental state down and ever since then he's been unable to trust anybody and that that's caused that 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 has led to this impotence so Ariel kind of clicks her tongue at this and initially is disappointed that Rudius couldn't perform under pressure basically but decides that this is probably the reason why Rudius was the way he was and she also tells uh, Sylphie that this that the conclusion that she's made is that the entire reason why he didn't notice that this was Sylphie the, the whole time was probably because Rudius never has once acted like he's better than anybody else he's never he's never acted as if he's stronger than everyone so he doesn't realize that he is indeed more powerful than any mage that they've ever met and he's the strongest mage at the school he's even stronger than the teachers and she says but he doesn't realize this because he just thinks that it's just everybody can do this and due to him meeting people like Orsted the dragon god or him meeting people like the demon king or the immortal demon king or even Kishirika and Rajurd and all these like really powerful people he has completely just thought that he's no different than anybody else he's just average at best when that's not the case so she also comments that most likely he thought that because Fitz was a silent uh, spellcaster like himself that there was probably plenty of others that were also silent spellcasters and that this is probably the continued reason why he never thought twice about uh, Sylphie potentially being Fitz because in all honesty like it would make sense that you know the rule like princess would have guards that were capable of using silent spellcasting so then, uh, 
After hearing the story, Boot Gray Rat steps up and says that he asked Sylphie if Sylphie wants to cure Brutus's impotence. And Sylphie says she does, and that it she she would love to do this because he's he saved her so many times, and she feels like it's the least she could do to repay him, and she loves him deeply, and she really wants to have sex with him to I guess commemorate their coming together again but she's worried that she's not attractive enough to do it so then Ariel begins to give her some tips on how to be more attractive and how to maybe get his little man to work and she gives him some sexual tips some things to say maybe some acts to perform and you find out that Princess Ariel is a pretty naughty girl she like she knows quite a bit of stuff about sex so she's busy telling Ariel or she's busy telling Sylphie all about these different acts to perform and different ways to touch him and different ways to arouse him and then Luke Greyrat says I have to go get something I'll be back so he disappears for a little bit when he returns Sylphie and Ariel have concluded their little meeting about sex and some extra stuff that she could do in the sack to try and get him to I guess be more aroused and even down to what to wear and Luke shows back up and interrupts their conversation and tells her that he has a solution to the problem. He also notes that it's going to be difficult for Sylphie to arouse him because she's not, she doesn't have big breasts and she doesn't have a curvy body like some of the other females and that any, that all the gray rats are attracted to either animal, or animal girls or they're attracted to women that have very shapely figures. And this makes Sylphie very sad, but then he pulls out a little bottle, which mimics the bottle that Eris bought him in part one. If you remember, it was an aphrodisiac, and they didn't know what it was at the time. Rudius knew, but they didn't. So Luke hands this aphrodisiac to Sylphie and tells Sylphie that use this, and you'll be able to have sex with him. And this should this this will cure his problem. So she asks how he needs to consume it, and he says he can consume it with an alcohol, he can consume it by itself. You just decide how you want to do it. And he tells her that it's a really expensive bottle because it's not really made anymore due to the Fatoa region getting destroyed by the mana to the by the mana or the Buena Vista area that they grew up in was kind of where this herb originated from. And due to the displacement incident, pretty much everything got wiped out, so there's not as many in circulation, and so the ones that are in circulation are really expensive. But he gives it to her anyway and tells her that he feels like he owes her this because she saved him so many times and that it's the least he could do to repay her. And then Ariel pulls out two Asura gold coins and gives them to Sylphie and tells her to go buy anything she needs, clothes, food, liquor, whatever she needs to, you know, execute the plan that they spoke about. So then she thanks them both and she heads out to go and to the commerce section and she buys some really expensive alcohol. She puts on her, you know, fancy lingerie that Ariel had purchased for her. She puts on, you know, her her best her best foot forward basically. And she shows up to where Rudis is at 
at his house, knocks on the door. Brutus answers the door, of course. And is surprised to see Sylphie because he had told her that they needed to rest. But she shows up and promptly locks the door behind her and goes in and they begin talking. And she says, I got us some alcohol for to, you know, so we could celebrate our reunion together. And she tells him that she really loves him. And she pours the alcohol but she's never had alcohol before so she doesn't really know how it tastes and she tries some of it and it's really bad at least in her opinion but then Rudius is really smooth about this and he actually dilutes the alcohol for her so she can drink it a little cleaner by using like magic to put hot water into the cup and then put a little of the alcohol in there so it's not so strong and Rudius is just drinking the alcohol normal she's drinking a diluted version and their conversations are getting a little more you know sexual a little more sensual the like like the setting is is right like the mood is getting there and then she puts out the snacks that she made and or that she bought and then she places the little aphrodisiac bottle on the table and rudy questions what it is and she, while also noting that um he recognizes the bottle but he can't remember what it is so he's struggling to remember that he actually had one of these a while back that broke and she tells him that this is not it's a powerful aphrodisiac and that it should it's it's medicine and it should cure his his impotence rudius says you know questions if it would actually work and he asks how he's supposed to consume it and she says you can mix it with a drink or you can just drink it by itself and so he decides to open the bottle and he just drinks it straight and he drinks about two-thirds of the bottle and then Sylphie remembers some comments from Luke about how the bottle works and Luke had told her that upon him drinking it it's going to arouse him to a new height that he's probably never been to before and that if he drinks pretty much all of it that they're going to be up all night having sex and that if she can't keep up, it's he's gonna continue because the the aphrodisiac is that strong. It just it pretty much puts you in like a mind, a very animalistic state to where you just want to have sex. And so he warns her that if there's any left, that she probably will need to drink it so that she can keep up with it. So then back to the current time, they're speaking back and forth, and she decides to drink the remaining third of the bottle and then they drink a little more alcohol and then their eyes lock and then Rudius stops her from drinking anymore and then he gets in close to her and they start you know making out passionately and then it cuts to the morning and Rudius is waking up and he remembers everything that happened he remembers having sex he remembers being with Sylphie and then he he remembers Eris and how Eris left him. He remembers Sarah, how Sarah left him. And he has his eyes closed and he slowly turns his head to the left and he looks and he sees that Sylphie is laying there with her eyes open waiting for Rudis to wake up. To his surprise, she's actually there, so he reaches out to like pat her, pat her on the head to make sure that she's actually there. And tears begin to flow down his eye, you know, down his face, and he 
brings her into like a warm embrace and he basically just tells her you know he he's so he's so stunned that his his impotence has been cured and he mentions that he's finally cured and that it's, he's waited so long for this and he gives her a big hug and he 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 thanks her and she you know of course she you know they they, they eventually leave or whatever <laughs> And they make a joke that she's walking bow-legged because he completely pounded her that night. Which, I mean, clearly, like, they went most all night because, I mean, it's basically like lunchtime when they woke up the next day. So they they, they had quite a bit of sex. And, um, and that's where that chapter ends. So Rudy's finally broke the curse. So the man-god's advice was correct. Sylphie finally had the nerve to tell Rudeus who she was so all is well in the world and then we get into the side the final side story of the chapter and Sylphia part zero so all the other side chapters are like part one part two part three part four but this one is Sylphia part zero and it actually just takes it takes it back to the beginning and it takes it all the way back to the scene where that you see in the anime where uh, Fitz has noticed that there's a student on the list that they should recruit, and it was Quagmire Rudius. And she recounts the full story and tells him that, you know, he was a Saint-level ma- mage at five. He has, he tra- you know, he's traveled the land or whatever, and he's become this A-rank adventurer, and he's known as Quagmire Rudius. And, of course, you know, again, Ariel and them are you know, at the time, they don't believe it, but they tell her that if it that if it is real, that they would love to recruit him into the school. And so then, several months pass after they've passed the information to the vice principal, and then Rudy shows up at the school, and Sylphie sees him for the first time, and is really excited and really happy to see him. And she recounts her memory about their duel, and how crushed she felt when Rudius didn't recognize who she was and she knows that Rudius probably wouldn't remember because her hair's different she's wearing a boy's outfit she doesn't she's not coming across as a girl so she's not surprised that Rudius doesn't remember but she's sad at the same time and this starts this whole process in her head that maybe he doesn't remember her and maybe if she did say who she was he would you know just dismiss it and say he doesn't remember who Sylphie is because it's been you know at this point it's been 10 no 11 years 11 years since they've seen one another she recognized him instantly and saw how manly he'd gotten and how much he had changed and that he's not the boy that she remembers anymore and that he looks a lot more a lot more like Paul. He's muscular. She sees a line with him and she's she's very, I guess, perturbed by this and she's worried that maybe this is like his new lover. She doesn't really know the full story yet behind like a line but she sees line as a threat. And then, um, you know, she's just ecstatic that Rudy's joined the, joined the school and she finds herself in the library to get some some study material for Ariel for her class. 
and runs into Rudy in the library. And then she just recounts all this stuff, you know, with Rudy all over again. And it's just from her perspective. And then, you know, the chapter culminates with them having her having the courage to tell him that, you know, she is Sylphie and that, you know, all the way to the point where she woke up in bed with him and she is, you know, just completely just happy as can be to, to be with Sil- or to, to be with Rudy and she's noticing all these different parts to him that she never got to notice before because she's getting to see him naked and she's just so like elated to, to, to be with him. It's a really sweet moment actually. It's, it's a really cute like chapter seeing it from her perspective um, seeing how strong Rudis is like her, her reaction to him defeating the demon king was priceless I mean she's so shocked that he's so strong and he's grown so much I mean she like she makes a comment that not only has he become a man but she but he's also he's also outpaced her in every magical category that she can think of and that she's nowhere near his level kind of makes her sad but she knows that Rudeus is just really exceptional and really powerful so she's not surprised and she's you know it just recounts all her memories and just everything that's happened with her and how she got to where she's got and how she's seen Rudeus and um, how you know initially Ariel had given her permission to tell Rudeus who she was but Another reason why she held off was because she was worried that if Rudeus blabbed about it in some way, or if the student body found out that she was actually a girl, that it would affect Ariel and her candidacy for for princess later, because they've they've garnered all this support through the student body, and nobody knows much about Fitz, just that it's just this lone warrior that's really powerful and hasn't been defeated in battle. And she's worried that if everyone realizes that it's a girl, that they might treat Ariel differently going forward. And so this also leads to complications because it's just another reason why she doesn't want to tell Rudy. And, I mean, it even recounts the story of how the panties fell from the window again onto Rudy on his first day of school and the stuff that went through her head all over again. It's just a really sweet little chapter culminating with them being together at the end it's really sweet they had they, they share a nice kiss at the end and when they leave to go to school you know that she's she's noting that she's struggling to walk because he pretty much railed her the previous night and um <laughs> it just it's just really funny it, it, it it's actually a very cute chapter i enjoyed this one a lot and now to the final chapter. This is the extra chapter, and it is the best chapter, in my opinion. All the chapters are good. Chapters 3 and 4, with, with Batagati showing up and fighting Rudius was amazing. This whole chapter 9 through 11 was, was great, with like Sylphie and, and Rudius and getting their uh, feelings to culminate and coming together and finally having sex, and it's just like everything about this book is amazing i love this book this is one of my favorite books so much happens it it has has action it has has romance in it it's it's just there's so much good stuff in this chapter 
or in this volume. It's, it's going to be one of my favorite parts when they animate this. Um, unlike Volume 8, which I didn't like as much, this one just really slams home uh, information about, about Sylphie, the much-needed backstory and the information of what happened to her is given throughout this entire volume and it's just it's just great that's the, the like i can't say enough how much how good this this volume is this is this is one of this is by far you know one of my favorite volumes and the final chapter is an extra chapter and it's called mad dog rages and so you can guess who's going to show up in this chapter and this is such a good chapter by the way this is by far my favorite chapter out of the entire out of the entire volume this is really out of seven eight and nine this is my favorite chapter so the story picks up and it flashes to the sword um sanctum where Galfarion, who's the sword god, who's the current sword god, he is there, standing there, giving like a speech to the students, and next to him is going to be Nina Falion, who's like his, uh, so he's like the uncle, so she's, you know, whatever, she's related to him, but she's not his daughter, and so she's there, and then her cousin, Gino Falion, is there. And it's noted that they're both Saint Tier ranked swordsmen. And then the third person standing next to them is Eris, who's also a Saint ranked swordsman. And Nina Falion makes, you know, in her mind, she doesn't like Eris, and she's making, you know, in her head, she's making comments about how she doesn't like Eris, she doesn't get along with Eris. She considers Eris a rival, but Eris pays her no mind. And she doesn't really understand why Eris is the way she is. But she recounts a story from two years ago as to when Eris arrived at the Sword Sanctum. The day she arrived, she arrived with the Sword King Ghislaine. They entered the Sanctum. And to even Ghislaine's surprise, Eris popped off a rude comment toward the Sword King and basically said that, you know, who's this chump here? And the Sword King, you know, stood up and smiled at Eris and says, um, and says, you know, you're here with Ghislaine. I assume that, you know, you're strong. And they kind of chit-chat like a little bit back and forth. And of course, everybody in the auditorium is very, very upset with Eris because her tone with the sword god is just it's not like anyone else. Everyone else is very respectful, but Eris is coming across as just being a jerk toward the sword god. Even Ghislaine is worried about this because they think that the sword god might try to kill her. And then the sword the sword god notices Eris's abilities and he he makes note that she's different than the other students. So he says, so he tells Gino to step up and fight Eris. So for a quick sparring match so he can see her abilities. And they toss the wooden swords in to the arena. And as soon as Gino picks the sword up, Eris is already attacked. As usual. 
So Gino doesn't even get a chance. Before he can even do anything, Eris has already struck him down with the wooden sword, completely, you know, removing the sword from his hand, striking him down at the same time and laying him out in front of hundreds of people. The sword god smiles and said, everyone here is soft. And he goes, you're the first person that's come here that's not soft. And he, he tells her that he can he can see that there's a fire raging in her eyes and he asks her who is it that you want to kill so bad that you would come in with this attitude and Eris calmly looks up at him and says I wish to kill the dragon god Orsted everyone in the auditorium is just shocked by this most people they don't know who Orsted is but they recognize the name dragon god however Galfarion knows who Orsted is and he says, so you wish to kill that old bastard. And he makes a comment that he also wants to kill Orsted. And that he, he then asks Eris if she can do it. And Eris says, it's not a matter of if, I will kill Orsted. And then he says that he needs to see another duel with her, but a proper duel. So he tells Nina Falion to, to, to take the duel. So they get their weapons and Ariel has picked her. Eris has picked up her wooden sword and returned to the center of the auditorium. And as Nina is approaching the wooden sword, one of the saint, uh, one of the saint uh, swordsmen throws her a particular sword. And when she when she catches it, she realizes that it's a sword. It's a wooden sword with an actual blade that is in the middle of it. So it's heavier and stronger than any normal with a sword because it's an actual sword. And they give a slight nod because they want her to kill Eris. Galfarion notices this but doesn't say anything. So the fight commences, you know, the, the fight starts. Eris rushes Nina. Nina, as they clash swords, because her sword's an actual sword, it clearly just destroys Eris's wooden sword. And Nina thinks that the fight's over, but as soon as she thinks the fight's over, she gets decked straight in the face by Eris. Eris doesn't hold back. She then punches her again, knocks her straight to the ground, then kicks her hard enough to send her flying several feet. The sword is then thrown you know away from Nina Nina's on the ground before Nina can even recover Eris is on top of her just waylaying on her similar to what she did to Rudius back when they first met she lands about 12 punches on Nina completely laying her out knocking her teeth out leaving her completely black and blue Nina has has actually has tears coming out of her eyes because she's so afraid of Eris because she sees the devil basically like a demon inside of Eris and she actually is so afraid of Eris that she pisses herself in front of all these people then Eris and after the sword god calls the fight Eris gets up and scoffs at her and picks up the sword and realizes that it's a real sword and throws it down and it sticks into the ground and she scoffs and then everyone is you know, most everyone is, is upset because, you know, how, how dare Eris do this? 
and there's only a few in the in the in the auditorium that that know that Eris was in the right. And those are like Gislaine knows it, the two sword emperors in the room know it, and of course the sword god. So then the sword god stands up and says, "Now you're gonna fight me." And the sword god pulls out his sword, and it has a it has a name. I can't remember the name of the sword, but it has a it has a cool name. He pulls it out. It has a golden sheen to it, and it's one of the seven great swords in in all the land. And so. Um, Eris immediately jumps back and grabs her real sword, knowing that this is going to be an actual battle. Galfarion makes a comment about Eris's sword, saying that the same person who made that sword made his sword, but that his is a little more special than hers. So, the, the fight's about to commence. The sword god puts his, you know, unsheaths his sword all the way, and in an instant, Flash steps over to where Eris is at and hits Eris at the same time. Eris actually blocks the attack, though, to the Swords God's surprise. But it happens so fast that only the Sword King, Gislaine, and the two Emperors saw it. No one else in the auditorium saw it. What they saw was just he flash stepped on her and kicked her so hard it, it knocked her out of the auditorium and out into the snow, you know, X amount of feet into the snow. But what had actually happened was he flash-stepped on her, attacked her, she blocked the attack, but the force of the attack still knocked her out of the out of the area. The sword god comments how great it is to see someone so young be so strong. And he looks at Ghislaine and compliments her on her training and says, you've done fine, a fine job training the student. I'm very impressed. Everyone is shocked to hear this, of course, but they think that she's potentially dead until they see Eris, you know, stumbling back into the auditorium to everybody's surprise. And then the sword god announces that Eris is now a sword saint level warrior and that she'll be automatically enrolled into the school and that he will train her personally. And he tells Ghislaine that she needs to attend to the wounds of Eris and that training starts tomorrow, much to everybody's dismay. So then we flash forward two years again, and they're standing on the podium, and they're, you know, conducting their everyday training battles that they do, and Eris is working on her technique, and you find out that Eris really hasn't made friends with anybody there at the school. She spent most of her time with Ghislaine still training daily. She spends the other time training with the Sword King, or with the Sword God. And she doesn't even live uh, with any of the girls, like, in, in the dorms. She only, she just stays with the Ghislaine. And they share, like, a living area together. And everyone at the school has picked up on that Eris is very to herself and just always comes across as rude and never wants to hang out with anybody, never wants to talk. So Nina has considered Eris a rival because she wants to be the first, the next sword king, but Eris is clearly like a step above her, and she knows this, but it frustrates her because Eris is the way she is. And so one day, Nina is having a conversation with some of her friends, and they're talking about, of course, the conversation shifts to their love life. And during this conversation, Nina 
is confidently saying that she probably can't find anybody to fall in love with because she's devoted herself to the sword. And the other girls are saying, you know, that they have boys that they like and they're discussing who they like and who they think's cute and all this stuff. And then Eris happens to pass by and kind of clicks her tongue during this conversation, which enrages Nina. So Nina stands up and says, you know, makes a passing comment that you'll die alone because the way you are, you'll never have someone to keep you warm. All your all your sword skills and all your abilities will not keep you warm at night. And that, you know, you'll die a virgin. And these are bold words coming from her because she herself is a virgin. And so Eris scoffs and begins to kind of laugh. And you see her face turn slightly red and Eris proudly says that she is no virgin and that she has had, uh, that she has a boyfriend. Much to the surprise of everyone around, they begin to, to question if Eris is telling the truth. And Eris proudly tells them that she is in love with Rudius Greyrat and that Rudius is the first man, first and only man that she will have sexual relations with and she will eventually go back to him. And she tells him, like she goes on at length about how great Rudius is and how strong he is and how when they fought the dragon god Orsted, Rudius was the only one out of the party that actually injured the dragon god Nina flat out doesn't believe Eris, and she even she even calls Eris a liar and says there's no way that a mere mage could damage the dragon god because the dragon god's aura is so strong it would be impossible. And Eris clicks her tongue and says that he did, and that he is an incredible mage, and there's no mage like him. She also states that she's in deep deeply in love with him. And that she's going, she's here to train so she can return and eventually be able to stand by his side and then marry him down the road and have babies with him and all that stuff. But she basically just says that she wants to get stronger so that she can help kill the dragon god with Rudius because that's their goal. So all the girls are so surprised by how serious Eris was about this that they realize that she's telling the truth, that she's not lying, that she actually has had sex. And when they look to Ghislaine for, um, I guess, they're hoping to look toward Ghislaine so Ghislaine can dismiss it as maybe a lie, Ghislaine gives them the look that she's telling the truth, and this shocks them even more to hear this. And then Eris goes back to continue her training. So then later that day, Nina gets a, a devilish idea that maybe she should go investigate this so-called Rudius Grey Rat. And that... It would be great to know that he's actually not real and that everything she said was a lie and she wanted to throw it back in Eris's face that Brutus isn't, isn't even a real person. So she travels to a neighboring town where the Adventures Guild's at and she pays an information broker to pull any information on this Rudius Grey Rat. So, they, so surprisingly, the information that the broker pulls is quite a lot. And he tells her that he was he was he at three years old he trained under the uh, under the Water King Roxy. He became a Saint Tier Water Magician at the age of five. That he was um, caught up, or that the, he then went and trained uh, Eris Boris Greyrat 
at the Grey Rat family house when he was age seven, then was caught up in the displacement, the Mana displacement, and that he traveled the demon continent for three years to make it all the way back to the central continent, survived the whole time, and then turned up again later in the northern continent and began making a name for himself as Quagmire Rudius. She scoffs at the name and makes a joke that he's probably not, that his, his accomplishments at a young age were great, but it doesn't seem like he's accomplished much since. So she doesn't, she doesn't find it very impressive. So then she gets the idea that she should travel to the Renola Kingdom, where Rudius is located, because the information broker also told her that's where he's at. So she's going to travel there, defeat him in battle, drag him back to the Sword Sanctum, and embarrass uh, Eris and Rudius in front of everybody. That's her, that's her grand plan here. So she travels all the way to the uh, Renoa School of Magic. It takes her like six weeks to get there. She finally gets there. And she begins asking around where Rudius Greyrat is at. And she happens to run into beast, to beast folk because she notices that there's lots of beast folk on the campus. She runs into the beast folk there and they say, yeah, we're, like, we're looking for him too. Let's go find him. And sure enough, like shortly thereafter, the, the beast folk she's following finds Rudius. And then she's shocked to hear that the guy challenges Rudius to a matrimonial duel. Rudius accepts or, well, declines the duel, but then the guy jumps uh, jumps over and attacks Rudius anyway, and then in a blink of an eye, Rudius finished him off faster than she could even think. And she says it was one of those blink-and-you-miss-it type fights, like, it happened so quick. And then Rudius proceeded to head toward the library. She lost track of where he went, so she had to search him down again, and she found the entire group of you know, beast people outside the library standing to fight him, and she asked what they were doing, and they said, well, Rudius is in here, we want a challenge to marry Persony or Linia, and he's the boss of the beast people, so we have to defeat him. She's shocked to hear this information, because how could someone who's not part of the Dolia tribe be the boss? But they insist that he has been, that it's been told by the beast tribe that you have to defeat Rudius in order to to garner any affection from Lenian Persia because Rudius has defeated them in battle like already. So the girl waits patiently outside for her turn and then that's whenever Badagati shows up and asks everybody um, what they're doing there and they tell him that they're waiting for Rudius to come out. He goes, oh yeah, he's a very popular man. I'm here for Rudius too. And then they make a comment that he should wait in line just like the rest of them. And he says, well, how can I skip, you know, cut through the line? And they say, well, you'd have to beat us all. And Badagati says to bring it on. He tells them that they should all attack him at once. And he basically tells them that if anyone can harm him, he'll, he'll announce them a hero. But he doesn't anticipate anybody here being able to. So everyone attacks at once. Nina gets caught up in it as well. So she pulls out her magical sword gifted to her by her uncle, the sword god. And she performs a sword of light attack, which is the strongest attack in the sword god arsenal. 
and it does absolutely nothing to Badagati. Badagati literally gets a small cut on his shoulder and heals instantly. He then breaks the sword into a thousand pieces and then lays her out in one hit <laughs> and then proceeds to lay out everybody in the fight. And he laughs, you know, wildly. And it is, it is at this point that Rudy has exited the library and that's when him and Badagati head off to their fated duel. And she struggles to get to her feet because she's heavily injured and she ushers herself to where the crowd's at and she's watching this fight take place. She can't hear anything that Badagati and Rudius are speaking of. And within an instant, she notices that Rudius has pointed his staff toward Badagati and she sees a huge amount uh, of mana being focused into the staff and she wonders like how he can conjure so much mana without an incantation then Rudis fires off a stone cannon to her surprise and as it whistles through the air it hits Badagati and the smoke clears and she sees that Badagati has been completely blown in half and his entire upper body was incinerated by this attack and she's so shocked by this, like her eyes turn like ghostly pill, basically. Like she's so shocked, all the light goes out of her eyes. She's just totally white with shock. And after seeing this, she stumbles away from the scene, fearing that she might have made a mistake coming to the school because Rudis could clearly probably kill her because she's realized that her strongest attack did nothing to Badagati, but yet Rudius blew him in half, like completely just blew him away with one attack. So she gets to her horse and she travels back to the, um, to the sword sanctum. And her attitude has changed toward Eris at this point. Once she arrives back, she reports her information to the sword god. The sword god laughs and says, that he wanted a chance to kill Badagati himself, but he says that Rudius is a great mage, and that it's high, that it would be something that only he could do, and that he expected no less from the Quagmire himself. And Nina is even more shocked to hear this, that the Sword God knows who Rudius is, and the Sword God tells her that, he, that she needs to refocus her efforts and start thinking about her training more. So from this point on, she starts to separate herself from her other classmates, kind of like what Eris does, and she really starts focusing on her training, and she starts to hold Eris with much more higher regard, and realizes that Eris is, is telling the truth and is de deathly serious about killing Orson. So she realizes she needs to train more in order to keep up. And that's the end of the, that's the end of the, of the volume. Overall, Volume 8 was absolutely fantastic. I loved everything about this volume. Getting the extra chapter at the end with Eris was amazing because, you you know, we, we wait we wait so long, it feels like, between Volume 7 and 9. And there's no mention of Eris the whole time. And then finally, at the end of this chapter, she's shown up. And it is so fantastic seeing how strong she's gotten and seeing that she's been putting in a lot of training and effort just like Rius has sort of been doing and at the same time we get we finally you know have Sylphie and Rudius are together and it, it it's just, it's it's fantastic the fight with Badagati was fantastic 
Seeing it from Nina's point of view was fantastic. Seeing it from Rudis's point of view was great. The surprise that Nana Hoshi or uh, Silent Seven Star was the girl in the mask that was with Orsted, that's a big surprise. Um, all this information, there's so much information in this volume. So many hints for the future. And so, honestly, this is one of my favorite chapters. If you like this review of this chapter, like and comment below. Subscribe to the podcast. I'll be reviewing the other ones as I, you know, get to them. Um, I plan to continue to review them each until I'm caught up, and then we'll review them as they come out, uh, or as they're translated into volumes um, and into English. Keep in mind, the web novel is ahead of the light novel. So the web novel is actually, I think, completed, but they're they're turning the web novel into volumes so or into light novel volumes so it takes a little long for or a little bit time for that now in japan i think they have 25 volumes of the light novel are like already released but in america they only have 16 the 17th volume comes out i think in may so we'll definitely be doing a reaction to the 17th volume because i haven't got to read it yet and i haven't read ahead in the web novel so i don't really know what happens after volume 16 but I can tell you without a doubt that Volume 9 is one of my favorite volumes. Out of everything I've read, it is one of my favorite volumes. And it's one of my favorite books in general. This is such a good book. The, the, the author does such a good job here with the story. It is fantastic. So again, if you liked it, subscribe down below. Check out my other content. Hopefully you guys are, are excited about what you saw. What, like, what did y'all think of the chapter? Um, let me know. And I hope to see y'all in the at the next review. So peace out.